This is Kevin. And this is Ron. And this episode of Your Valuable Home is brought to you by Provia. Provia, a faith-based company that makes entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood-clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufactured stone, and metal roofing, all of incomparable quality. Welcome to Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast for listeners who believe that residential real estate is the way to build wealth. Hi, I'm Kevin Kennedy, a working contractor and host of Your Valuable Home. Your Valuable Home is for homeowners and investors alike who want to acquire and improve real estate based upon educated decisions. And I'm Ron Milk, Your Valuable Home producer and co-host. Our weekly one-hour podcast is not about doing it yourself. It's about hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price. And it's not about flipping. It's about buying and holding to build wealth. Homeowners and investors who strive to create wealth and financial freedom with real estate and avoid costly home improvement mistakes. Your valuable home is for you. The Project Replay made redoing our kitchen and bath trouble-free. Your horror stories have kept us from hiring the wrong contractors. The college segments have taught us how to keep toxins out of our home, what to look for in replacement windows, how to borrow sensibly against home equity, and more. College teaches investors like me how to freshen up my rentals without spending a fortune. Their suggestions are great for ROI. It's time for Your Valuable Home. Okay, Kev, we talked about today how our listeners can pick up on contractor scams before they can become horror stories, correct? Is correct. Okay, good. Yeah, so what I was thinking to myself when I, I spoke to one of our listeners before, and he was talking about how contractors can get away with just lying and how they scam people to try to be able to sell the job. The bottom line is contractors or roofers are trying to sell you, no matter how they do it, whether it's against it's not the, just contractors, man. It's, it's, oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I encounter a lot of that stuff today. What I know is about in the contract world. And mm-hmm. so we're in Pennsylvania. So I decided to put a little test out. What was funny about it, I know we talked about with, cause my name is technically on it, uh, but some people don't know me, but my sister-in-law saw it. She's what are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm just trying to gather some information for the show. So I want to be able to point out how the lies are in place. Cause I have them here. I already sent them to Mike Bannon and what they're trying to do to get the money from you is if they'll lie, cheat, steal, do whatever they take to get the job. But in the state of Pennsylvania, the HECPA, the Home Improvement Consumer Protection Act right. says we can't do that. Who's policing them from these lies to sell homeowners. That's what I started to get into, but I wanted to make sure that again, I'm not going to mention any names. As I put it out there, I was looking for windows and doors. Could somebody recommend me somebody uh, that's going to be good enough that met my criterias on exactly what I was looking for? I wanted somebody that's going to be doing the work themselves, an owner. I want somebody that's not subbing out. I want somebody that's going to do the right job, blah, blah, blah. Not many responses right away, but it was mostly contractors trying to write in and say, hey, I can do your job. So the one I actually first I started working with, I mean, he seemed pretty decent uh, talking about, it, but I said, I still like to see your work and you doing the work. See, not many people want you on their job. And I said, listen, I don't want to enter the property. I just want to drive by, see you there with your guys. One's physically doing the work. End of that conversation. Then somebody else chimes in saying, hey, listen, uh, we're a small company. Uh, We're going to be able to do the work. I'm the one doing the work. And as I started checking out more and more and more, and uh, I said, well, listen, can you send me photos of the jobs that you're working on, I would like to see during progress so I can inspect exactly what you're doing, whether it's going to be windows or siding or roofing. Like, I want to see the applications. Everybody shows before and after, but what's the most important thing of any job? Prep. So if you do a job wrong underneath, the siding facade that you put up, if it's not properly flashed or Tyvek under there or the windows are improperly installed or could have been done better, isn't that a little bit more important than just throwing some siding up? Everything has a beginning, you know? So if, you, if, if it's not right in the beginning, it's definitely not going to be right at the end. 
and that's why I, I, I said it numerous times, either on the show or, or putting this out here, then because uh, somebody sent me some pictures during, and I, I was questioning the work that they did. And once I questioned the work they did, again, that lead got quiet because you can see they're gung ho. They think they have the job. So I'm asking them questions. And then I dropped the anvil on them and say, hey, here you go. I need a little bit more information. Let's talk about it. And once I seen that, the workmanship wasn't bad. Then I can't put that photo on because it has his name on it. It was horrible. And I was pointing it out to even like my guys, or I, I remember talking to you about it, of all the things that were done wrong. And what is going to happen is in future, because if you start something wrong now and you frame it wrong or you, you put it on wrong, you'll start to notice down the line, the course of time, how it will show its ugly face. Now, like an example, uh, I was talking to somebody, I sold a siding job coming up for the spring. And over the winter, we were talking about it. And I said, this is what I did back years ago in the late 90s to win my first two Golden Hammer Awards by a siding company, the manufacturer. And when I do it, when you put it down, I said, what could possibly happen if you don't nail correctly, you're going to start to see sag in between J channel. Because even though it's J channel, it's not siding, say we put it at the bottom. It's going to go in or it's going to go out or maybe both. It's going to do both. Yeah. And it's going to start to sag also. Right, right. Because right. what people usually do is I see them putting it up and they're putting spans of with vinyl siding, nailing 48 inches. You can't do that. So mm -hmm. siding has to be nailed every stud. Mm -hmm. And then from there, if you take the J channel, people put J channel up and that J channel, if you have a long span of it, if you're only putting one or two nails in it over time, that vinyl is going to start to sag. Mm -hmm. that's the fact it's going to happen but these are the things i'm talking about that's why i wanted to see during the job and then there was another one a brand new company that would start it up and same thing they're just misleading the public this is what i was talking to mike bannon i sent him the emails how would you run interpret if I was going to look to use your company and I asked you how long you've been in business and you respond back 30 years experience, what would you think 30 years experience is? I'd want to see when the license was taken out. But the, 30 years experience could be, you know, I ran a pizza shop for 10 years. It's experience, right? And he may have had to build something in his pizza shop too. <laughs> I don't know. I would definitely check it out. Right. So here's how you check in the state of Pennsylvania. All right. I'm going to give everybody my secret. It's a once in a lifetime thing here, but here's how it works out. So you have a HICPA license number. And I was the probably the last guy back 12 years ago, I think it was 12, 13, 14 years now to get the license back then. Because I'm like, what do I need to get a license for? And it's, it's $51 that I'm paying. What are they going to do for me? So then my accountant said, hey, you know what? You got to get the license because it's if you- It's a way to check somebody out. Okay. Yeah, and absolutely. I was okay with that. So- I put my license number in and it's like 15,000 because there was 15,000 prior contractors in the state of Pennsylvania that registered before me and I had to get signed up in a six month period. Right. Well, I did it and I was one of the last ones. I get it. I'm 30 years experience coming in and then I asked him like the one I, I did on this uh, social media site, how long you've been in business? 30 plus years. I mean, it's a way of saying I got 10 guys that work three years. That's 30 years. But how you look that PA HICPA license number. If there are 179,001 something, whatever, they just got their license. If you're 180, you, you're within weeks you of want getting a license. You want a low number guy. You want a low yeah. number. Okay. And that's where you get it. But again, you can go what's called the resolution form because that's where I asked one of them. I said, well, listen, I'll check it out, but I need to see a little bit more information. And I'm going to ask about the resolution form. That's form number two in the state of Pennsylvania. So after I fill my license out, I pay the money, but it's a resolution form, which I have to fill out. Are you in bankruptcy? Have you ever filed for bankruptcy? Were you under a different name? Are you being sued now? 
and you have to check off all these boxes. Well, they ask all the right questions, yeah. If you remember, it was probably about a few weeks ago on the show, Nisi came on talking about her roofer. Right. Well, I was in court. I was sitting in the back very nicely that nobody knew I was there. That's how this guy got caught because Nisi was asking him the questions. Well, listen, it says here on your, your license that you never filed for bankruptcy. You were never convicted of a crime, never had another company, and it was all lies. So the judge said, well, if your guy had been convicted of a crime. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh, he was definitely convicted. Wow. And he admitted it in court, but in the state of Pennsylvania, shouldn't you lose your license if you're going to be lying? Because it says, I, if I'm it telling you. It seems to me, yeah, absolutely. Still doing business, though. Guy's still doing business in here. So that's how you check it out. There's number one, just check the license number. If it's really high, but if it's really high and he still says he's been in business, then you say, well, listen, I'm going to go back to this resolution form because maybe he has been, but we got to check now the resolution form should state, yes, I was how under How do people do name. all this stuff? So it's a contractor lookup in Pennsylvania. Say contractor license number lookup and it will pop right up. H-I-C-P-A. Google it. Google it. Absolutely. Okay. And a pop up or there's a telephone number there because I remember when Mike was on for the Bad Guy Bulletin in January of 2024, we were talking about how to look at it. And I said, well, the website really doesn't give you great information. Like if you put my name in without my license number because you don't know it. You're not going to get anything. It's not going to get yeah. anything. But by law now in the state of Pennsylvania, if I'm going to do any advertising or like if my truck, you go out and you look at my truck right now, my license number's on there. The contract has the license because the state tells me I need to do it. So if I'm doing it by the books, why are these other people not doing it by the books? Because they're scammers. There's another Pretty reason simple why. simple explanation. This was the greatest thing. Now here's, and this is what I figured out years and years ago. And I, I remember mentioning it on the show for the past 11 years. So the last guy was writing in and he thought he had the job. We were going back about 20 different emails because he thought he had this job. He has in his statement, I've been in business for 25 years. So that means I know that company started 25 years ago. So I said, great, send me your license number. And I just want to check it out because I think that's what you're supposed to do just to make sure. Well, it was a brand new company that just opened up in the past six months. It was a high number. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Right. So I dropped the bomb on him. And I said, well, listen, you've been in business for 25 years. The license number says you only had your business for the past six months. And I looked at your resolution form and there was no other companies prior to this. Also, just to confirm, can you send me any township where you worked? I need to know that township where I can call the license and inspections. And I want to be able to ask them to pull up an address where you applied for a permit, say in 1996, 97, 98, 99, 2000, 2001. I'd never heard from him again. Yeah. After 36 emails of him knowing he's got the job, as soon as they put that out there, never heard from him again. Mm -hmm. Who's going to police these bad contractors to scam the homeowners are trying to get a decent contractor they just lie about it and you can get away with it this started basically around the time we started doing the your valuable home show i came up with a great solution i as soon as this rolled out this license here's how you should do the license and this is the way you're going to prevent people from scamming people is that the contractors should put up a twenty thousand dollar bond to the state of pennsylvania Probably a lot of them don't have $20,000. Well, then that's going to be a problem, isn't right. it? But right. the reason why is that if you are a bad contractor and you scan somebody, that $20,000 is going out of your pocket to these people that you scammed. If it goes to court, got to go through trial. You got to go through all that. I get it. So he said, well, there's some problems with it. I'm like, no, there's no problems with it. Just do it. Because then you're kind of minimizing all this. Because over the past three years, you and I've seen with the horror stories calling in, the massive amount of problems more than any any other time that I've been doing business for 34 years. And when people are like, well, hey, listen, you know, I want to get out of the business. I was in it for 10 years. I'm like, perfect. Number one, the state it's going to make money interest on that. Think about all these contractors that need to put this money up. So the mm -hmm. state makes a ton of revenue. Say my company, listen, I'm getting a little bit older. I want to retire. I then apply for a petition with the state. Are you pulling money out? 
Yeah, and then I get my twenty thousand back. Yeah, just if they, putting up a bond. Yeah, but if, if you really messed up a job, you don't get your twenty uh, twenty grand back. You no, know, that money should go to the homeowner. Well, you get a portion of money back. Well, whatever the homeowner needs to get the job corrected. Right, exactly. But if I have no problems and ever the state checks out over like say three months, no lawsuits come in, they give them the money back. But the state just made a ton of money. If I'm in business for fifteen years, a twenty thousand dollar bond, they've got to be making they interest a, on that. So mm-hmm. if you have one hundred fifty thousand contractors that are doing this, how much money did you just bring in? So it's not your technical money, but you're making money on the interest as you invested as a state so it's a great revenue for the state and it minimizes i'm not saying it's going to be a perfect cure but it's going to be able to minimize the bad contractors coming in and scam you for your money mm-hmm. so those are the things that i always look at to talk uh, with homeowners to give them the best well, they make a money on it until they have to release it if a homeowner gets stung then Correct. they release the money yeah yeah then they release the money but mm-hmm. then it goes back to well if you still be in business you got to put some more money back up in mm-hmm. the state because you might do it again Mm-hmm. So how do you do that? Mm-hmm. Because even if you lose your license, think about this. I'm a contractor. That's not a bad idea. I lose my license. I could use my wife's address or my wife's name or my cousin or my mm-hmm. brother and change the social security number. So these are all a lot of the scam ways that people do this and homeowners just don't know. But I can make it easy for you. If you have a problem, Kevin, at yourvaluablehome.net, let me answer the questions for you so you can hire the right contractor to do your job the correct way. You got a doozer of a horror story. You just sent me a picture here. This looks like my first roofing job. <laughs> yeah, I like your comment. You're like, what the heck is this? So for our listeners, I just got a picture sent in for one of our listeners who is a roofer and doing the job right. He sends me a picture and he says, what do you think about this? And that's why I figured you take a crack at it first. A homeowner just received a new roof. And as I'm looking at the picture, which we posted on our social media site... <laughs> When Ryan asked me, he's like, what am I really looking at? When you're looking at it on our Instagram or Facebook, your valuable home, you're going to notice that the shingles and it's old cedar siding. So at that shingle mark there, that's painted gray, that's step flashing. Oh, is that old cedar? That's what that is. Okay. Yeah, it's old, very old stuff. So step flashing when it's installed, it's installed in pieces at each individual roofing shingle that's placed down above the key line, which is where you don't see. It's got to be a new piece of step flashing, which takes the water and diverts it back outside the envelope of the house so it doesn't penetrate inside. So what the roofer was just recently done, as you could see, this gem of a roofer decided to put the step flashing on the outside of the siding. And Alex wrote into me, he said, hey, I thought you enjoy this. Uh, got a call for a water leak. Yeah. Any reasons, guess why, question mark. Basically, what they looked at is a wannabe new roofer because there's no possible way. I've never even seen this. I think once we did a show about this, somebody did this, putting the step flashing on the outside of siding. Now, Ron, I'm, I'll take a guess. Where do you think that step flashing should be? Inside the siding. <laughs> You I mean, think, it's, right? It's not doing anything. It's well, it's protect- collecting water very nicely. It's, yeah, but, but it's not protecting anything. No. 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 How it works is that when you have existing siding like this, and it does, it gets difficult for a roofer if not really into siding, they're just trying to sell roofing. How to properly do it is either you're going to have to cut a bottom of that portion of siding out. What you could do is a multi-tool, or I wouldn't say a reciprocating saw because it might get a little bit too difficult or chopped up, but I would use a multi-tool, should cut pretty easy, about three inches up, and then install all new flashing, and then I would put a piece of rubber over top of that existing so flashing. Can- and then put another board over top of that, maybe like a, a polymer board. Yeah. Or if you want to put like a two by four, then cap it. But what you'll need to do with the so cap. So you don't have to replicate the siding. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. It's basically, I always call it the stucco envelope when people mm-hmm. have stucco mm-hmm. and they really need that flashing replaced. Well, there's nobody to take the stucco off. Now, by doing it, it creates a little bit of an issue. But with this type of siding, this is a little bit more flexible. If you put wood up and then you cap it, you still need to get a drip cap up under there. So you have to be able to slide metal up under that siding and then use it as a drip cap. So it just drains properly. It's very simple to do for mm-hmm. roofers what i'm talking about it's easy but for homeowners getting a gist of it might get a little bit more difficult 
but there is no way you can put step flashing like this over because in this picture, you'll notice between the siding and that step flashing, any rain that hits that, water's leaking down inside the house. And that's one of the reasons why, as I'm reading this, uh, the homeowner got a new roof because he was having water penetrate inside his house. This doesn't fix it. I'm convinced that this is not step flashing 101. No. What's horrible about it is that it makes it more difficult now for this gentleman here, Alex, who's going to come in to try to fix this. It is a new roof. So number one, you can replace those shingles because they're going to be still fresh in their mind, but they're going to have to replace it anyway because the spray paint they used to try to paint this, see how it already leaked onto the shingle itself. So why would you put a brand new roof up, try to spray paint some step flashing and then have it blend all the way to the new roof. So now you have a stained roof from gray paint. (laughs) Hiring the right contractor, the right roofer to do the right job. I mean, how many times we talked about when you're getting a roof done. I mean, listen, take some pictures. Have the roofer re- take pictures. That's the only way to do it. I mean, nobody's, I, would you go, and I'm not going to go up my roof to no. see if, if it's ever done, right? And it's the only way to do it. But don't just take an isolated picture. You've got to take a picture of the whole course of the step flashing, don't you? Correct. Yeah. yeah. What you could even do it is to uh, have if you, him take the picture. Don't have your customer go up there. No, yeah, well, you got to be safe. That's what you're hiring a roofer for to yeah. get up there. But even still at that point, ice and weather shield is is such a beautiful thing. I mean, you could even cut that siding out three inches up or maybe a little bit more. Get ice and weather shield and try to get up under the siding. Just kind of just feather it in. You only need a little bit of to get up in there because the only reason I'm asking to do that is because if you just caulk, whether it's going to be a window, if it's like a cheap installation, a replacement, caulk doesn't solve the problems. It's a temporary fix to get the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal here is that roofer should have gave a couple options. Number one, hey, listen, we have some issues with that siding. Uh, we're not going to be able to address it, but uh, maybe we can do this way, this way, or this way, which is number one, strip all the siding down and put a new one to lay up. You're going to get a great job. No problems. Number two is you don't have the money to do it. It is leaking. Let's cut some of the siding back so we can expose the step flashing run some ice and weather shield up then put new flashing down then put another layer of rubber over top of that just to ensure it but to try to get something under the siding even if it's a quarter inch because of hard driving rain as it gets in there i always use the terms of what's called a riglet flashing now what that means is that if you have a chimney you're not just doing this piece of metal and you put a flare cap on and just throwing wads of caulk in it and thinking it's going to help because all it is is protecting from that step flashing is that big wad of caulk riglet is actually cutting it into the brick or the stone face that's there to get the metal into that stone. Right. So now it doesn't have an an option of water just getting in when the sealant fails. Mm -hmm. And if you don't do that from the beginning or do this job, you're going to have a problem from here on out because that's going to have a problem the next day after this is done. Pretty much. As you can see, it's a brand new roof. And uh, this company was called out and Alex had to go and uh, pretty much fix it. But I like to get him on. I know he's been very busy with all the storms we've been having here and trying to get everybody cleaned up and get everybody watertight but i'd like to have him back on to see exactly what he did so we can take the picture to show how a roofing job is done and done right yeah this is not done right this is not done right no, <laughs> it's a disgrace to see something like this because now that homeowner has got to now pay money to get this redone listen if your roofer is not explaining to you really in detail of what they're going to be doing because of seeing this if they're just signing up as a contract you ought to be asking a lot more questions than this if you have a leak ask why the leak is happening why is it coming into my house maybe go prior to signing the contract or if you sign the contract say hey listen show me the before pictures because i want to see exactly what you can do before and after and how you're going to solve I mean, it to me that's the solution to this problem just have the guy take pictures every step of the way along the roof it's a cell phone picture it takes you what a minute to do all that not even that you so, know it's not a big deal and you're gonna have a lifetime of problem free when you yeah. do it right i mean i see i don't understand how these roofers i mean I, I did roofing back from 89 to 96 when i was doing it why is it that i never had problems and now everybody else i mean there's everybody's a contractor and they're doing jobs like this and then the homeowners are getting caught in the bottom end is because they got to pay for all this to get redone 
So hiring somebody that's going to be reputable, somebody that you know, somebody that's going to do the right job and make these extra steps, it doesn't take much to do it and you're never going to have a problem. Okay, and listen, stick with us. We did a ride around with Bob McMullen and Herb, who works for Bob, two top arborists in the Bucks County in southeastern Pennsylvania. And what we saw will send shivers up and down your spine because it's stuff that can fall on a road and hit a car or hit a pedestrian or hit a bicyclist. So you're going to want to hear this, listen to it, and take it to heart. All right, we'll be back after we take a quick break. Hey, Kev, we can never, ever heap enough praise on Provia products, like, say, their metal roofing. That's right. Provia Metal Roof replicates the classic look of cedar shake, quarried slate, and clay tile, manufactured with 26-gauge galvanized steel and designed to withstand damaging hail, torrential rains, intense UV rays, and strong winds. A Provia Metal Roof is the last roof you'll ever need. With your roof covering 60% of your home's exterior, you'll appreciate the value of a Provia highly aesthetic metal roof that improves your home's curb appeal, provides 50 plus years of protection, requires little to no maintenance, and generates energy cost savings. And Provia's metal shake, slate, and barrel tile roof systems are made right here in the USA with domestically sourced steel, a portion of which is high quality recycled steel. Okay, Ron, it is time for the featured segment. I know you and I talked about this several times, an area that we live in, of course, of potential dangerous problems, and you're actually bringing to attention now. So what do we got? In our December release, as you well know, we interviewed arborist and head of uh, Keystone Tree Experts here in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and uh, attorney Gilbert High about the danger in dead trees. The podcast with this interview really resonated. We counted nearly 1,700 plays, downloads in a seven-day period, and we continue to get feedback from our listeners who are becoming aware of this wide widespread problem, and it is a widespread problem. We sent copies of the interview file to the governors of Pennsylvania and New Jersey, suggesting a first step, a campaign to raise awareness of this life-threatening hazard to motorists, cyclists, and others when they venture outdoors. we got a canal here in Bucks County. It goes all the way up the Delaware River. There's one on the Jersey side, too. And people walk that all the time, and there are bad trees out there, hazard trees, that could fall and kill somebody. We didn't get a response yet from the governors, so we're doubling down. And this time, by citing hazardous trees in New Jersey and Pennsylvania locations in a drive-around we do with Bob McMullen and Herb Hickmott of Keystone Tree Experts. Our listeners can experience what we saw in the photos we took. They'll be posted to the U of Able Home Instagram and Facebook accounts. We started a drive-around in New Jersey on Route 29, coming out of Trenton and going up towards Lambertville, New Jersey, and even further than that. And it parallels the Delaware River. We found lots of dead trees along the highway just outside Lambertville. Bob and Herb, will you describe what we saw and what we photographed? that our listeners will be able to see on our Instagram and Facebook accounts. We saw hundreds of dead trees, most of which, not all, but most of which were ash trees that had been killed off by emerald ash borers. A lot of the trees along Route 29 on the New Jersey side had been cut so that there was no large limbs hanging out over the road, but the side that was away from the road, which in some cases hung out over the canal, that was left alone. Your reference to human beings and uh, structure. Trees like human beings have a vascular system and that vascular system takes water from the root system, goes up through what's known as the xylem and takes that to the top of the tree where it mixes with various things, comes down the tree in what's known as the phloem and uh, that's where the nutrients are contained. If you 
have an effect on the vascular system, such as maybe an equivalent of a human being would be a hardening of the arteries. You feel the effects of that at the extremities in the case of a tree, and I believe in the case of a human being, certainly in the case of their hands. Everything goes from to the top and to the extremities first. That's for sure in a tree. So when a tree begins to die back, from poor circulation, and in this case, emerald ash borer is causing that poor circulation, it begins to die from the top down and the sides in. Those tops and those sides are extremely brittle. Equivalent would be if you have a similar problem in your hands, your hands get cold, your hands get numb, which which would indicate poor circulation. So the significance of this is that ash trees have extremely low percentage of water in them. A, a green ash tree, a live ash tree, has about the same percentage moisture content as seasoned oak firewood. It's very brittle and it breaks very easily. So the ones that break the pieces that dry the first are the top and the extremities. Unfortunately, what we saw was a whole bunch of tops and extremities that hadn't been touched. They weren't leaning out over the road, but if the wind was such that it was blowing them across the road, that's a, certainly a possibility. The other possibility is there was a danger in, in some cases to people in the canal area. So that, that's sort of the whole thing in a nutshell. These trees were everywhere. Well, you know what? It's very interesting to me that you use the uh, human analogy because as you said that, that uh, I'm thinking to myself, you know, we look at trees, especially big trees, they almost look indestructible, you know, when you look at them. But when you think of them as having the same kind of frailties as uh, and vulnerabilities as human beings, that changes the whole picture, you know? It does. And you can easily understand what's happening here. Yeah. For most people, a tree is a block of wood. They know that things happen. Uh, you know, the leaves drop, new leaves come out, they change color, all sorts of things happen. But they don't give it any thought as to why that occurs. And all that's occurring because of the vascular system within the tree. And just like human beings, they have a vascular system. We have a vascular system. Ours consists of blood and, and other minerals and so on. But the, the tree has this movement through it. And if you impair that movement, that section uh, or the top will dry, die first. And it becomes a, an out-and-out out hazard. And there's plenty of those hazards around. In Bucks County, you don't have to go far to see one. All you have to do is basically walk out your front door or your back door. The emerald ash borer is the reason for all the devastation in the ash tree population, not only here, but going across the country, I think as far as Kansas, right? Since I did the last one, I looked it up to see how far it's gone. It's now as far as Colorado and with an isolated area in Oregon. If you go from East Coast and go West, Every state in through that area up to Colorado, except for Florida, Mississippi, and Maine, currently has emerald ash borer. What does this bug look like? Where did it come from, and how long has it been here? I am referring to the adult now. The adult insect is a beetle. It's bright metallic green. It's about a half inch long. And it's very slender body. The bright metallic really shows up, particularly in the sun. It has wings. It can fly. It doesn't fly much and doesn't fly very far. The problem part of emerald ash borer are the larvae. The adults 
both females lay between 60 and 90 eggs, and they lay it in the bark area of an ash tree. Those eggs hatch and become the larva, which for lack of a better word, we'll just say are worm-like structures, and they're the ones that do the feeding on the tree. That's the part of the life cycle that causes the problem. They are about an inch to an inch and a half long, and they're white. And so in order to see them, once they hatch and move into the tree itself, you have to peel away the bark. They form these galleries underneath the bark. They work their way through the bark, up and down the tree. As they get bigger, the galleries get bigger. The nutrients get cut off more and more. Problem gets worse and worse until the tree dies. What attracts them specifically to ash trees? Herbs on the other line. I like seafood. Herb doesn't. I don't know why. Seafood tastes good to me, but apparently not to him. Many insects are very specific in what they what they go after. The host tree, as an example, except for one rare case, they haven't found emerald ash borer on anything but ash trees. Throughout the world, there's probably 10 or 12 different species of ash trees that's all they've really gone after they have one there was one rare exception but that really doesn't count it's been found on white fringe tree it's an ornamental shrub are there a lot of those in this area there's one in front of my house okay watch out (laughs) (laughs) it's not as widely used as say the ash trees which are a native tree to pennsylvania the white fringe tree is not a native species We're going to get into two other drives we took the same day, but I would imagine based on what we've seen, dead and dying ash, oak, and other trees are in danger of crashing down on roads and public recreation areas in this area, right? And probably in other areas around the country. We went from New Jersey to across the Pennsylvania side, and I'm going to let Herb pick it up from there. You and Herb got to walk around, so you can you know, certainly discuss what you saw. Just like on the New Jersey side, we were seeing scores of dead ash trees along the Pennsylvania side, along River Road, Route 32. It's a very heavily traveled road. We were able to observe dead ash trees on private property as well as in the right-of-way, the road right-of-way, just all over the place. And like Bob indicated, they're just waiting to fall, as uh, one of his analogies is, uh, all it's going to take is a, a fat squirrel to bring some of those limbs down you know the other thing that that, that amazes me too as we drove down that road we came over the upper new hope bridge there were a lot of trees that were lying on wires i mean there was a huge one that was lying on the wires and it took the wire almost all the way to the ground and nobody everybody seems to be like okay that's not a big deal nobody's doing anything about it you guys explain to me the high wire is the hot wire correct yes the kind of the hierarchy of uh the danger when it comes to overhead utilities, even though we're always warned that consider any conductor as carrying current that could kill you. The wires at the very top of the pole are the high voltage wires. They're called primary wires, and they're the ones that feed large areas with electricity. And then if you move down kind of in the middle of the pole, there's what are called secondaries. And they supply the household current, 240 volts at that level, and that's what supplies homes and businesses and so forth. And then below that, you have the communication lines, which in and of themselves are not really dangerous, but 
if they're crossed with uh, an electric line, they could become energized. And most of the time, the communication utilities don't care if there's trees resting on their wires. Once it reaches the ground, they'll come out and do something about it. While the branches or the trees or whatever trunks of trees are laying on the wires, as long as they're still in the air and they're still conducting the energy that they need for phone calls or television or internet, they're happy with that. The electric company is trying to protect everybody by pruning away from the number one, the primary wires, and in some cases, the secondaries if there's transformers close by. To let a big tree lay on a wire and take it almost to the ground, it's not a solution, is it? No. And the more it happens, the worse it's going to be. That's one thing, one comment I want to make. The other comment is a 240 volt that services homes is enough to kill somebody, isn't it? Absolutely. Okay, so they're not up that high. So we some of the stuff that we saw was probably lying on 240-volt lines, correct? It probably was. But we saw more of the same. It basically, the more species was uh, predominantly uh, ash trees on the Pennsylvania side of the river at this point, correct? That's correct. What about a big wind? And we've had a lot of severe weather in this area in the last couple of years, more so than... When I grew up here, more so than I remember. Any tree could fall at, at really any time because they're all all defying gravity. And as we know, gravity is not just a good idea. It's the law. And one of the things when you have a, a dead tree, there's not a whole lot of resistance to the wind because you don't have buds, you don't have leaves. But once the tree starts to move, there's some resonance and branches can break off and light winds. You get a heavy wind, it could take the whole tree down it could fail at at ground level and fall if you see a big pine tree or a big oak tree come down the root system on that on on those trees those big trees is not that deep really if you think about it where the uh, the nutrients and things that the tree needs to grow oxygen water it's all in the top six to 24 inches of soil and much below that there's nothing there for the tree so it's going to spread out as far as it can to stay upright the larger roots that are Close to the trunk, the flare roots or buttress roots, they're usually what keeps the tree vertical. And the ones that extend further out from that are feeding roots. They're the ones that take up the nutrients and oxygen and so forth. All right. Now I'm going to describe the, uh, just get into this and then let you take off from there. The last drive of the day, which was near my home on Route 532 as it comes out of Washington Crossing and heads into Newtown, Pennsylvania. And then on into Philadelphia. This is a perilous piece of road here. This is where last summer, seven people perished in, as you recall, the flash flood that came down that road. The road goes down into a depression and then back up again. And in that depression is where that water came through. Can you describe what we, what we observed here in terms of the trees that we saw? There were kind of a mixed band of hardwood trees. There were ash, maple, and oak in that stretch along there. And they were growing along a a stream bank, and the root systems were being eroded by moving water. So that adds to the, the hazard load. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I remember that one I pointed out to you. I went across the street, photographed it. The one that's like, it's almost, it's practically horizontal at this point. And it's a big tree, too the big tree. That tree is coming down, isn't it? It will. Uh, just a, Really just a matter of time. The more water that moves down there, the more erosion. Trees tend to do a pretty good job holding their ground. When you have a lot of water moving very rapidly, it's going to erode it. And before you know it, the 
tree is going to come down. It's going to come down on the, the road, come down. I believe there were wires on that side of the road. So all good size. They were probably between 60 and 80 feet. And there were some trees that had the utilities had come along and cut the tops out of them to keep them below primary wires. And those trees are at risk as well. Well, previous to our drive around, now you did this without us. You observed and photographed dead ash trees and other trees at a popular park in Doylestown, Bucks County. A lot of people use that park. I've used it. I've gone bicycling there. Did you photograph dead trees along that patch of property? Uh, up at the park, the county park, which is a beautiful place with just hundreds and hundreds of ash trees. The interesting thing I've since found out, they had a, a rather mass tree removal project throughout the park. And it's my understanding that even though in most cases they didn't take the trees down to ground level, which is from a safety point of view, should be all right. You leave a 20-foot a trunk, it isn't going anywhere. It's the limbs that are the problems. But anyway, I don't remember the exact number, but it was roughly 450000 that was spent on that park on tree removal and tree pruning or, or remediation work in regards to the park. And yet we went through I'm not blaming anybody for this. I'm sure they ran out of money. Uh, We went through and took pictures of numerous hazardous situations that still existed. They took care of most of the bad ones, but uh, there were still plenty left that were a problem. And I'm sure at that point, uh, they were out of money. This has become a common theme across the United States. Ohio, in particular, had problems with it where... Uh, the the parks were so badly hit by emerald ash borer, so many ashes were killed, they just didn't have the funds to do anything about it. And uh, I had read in some cases they filed for some type of bankruptcy. Uh, I don't know exactly what that consists of with the municipality, but they had to do something to protect themselves. This is a huge problem. As a matter of fact, I think I mentioned this the first time we did uh, a tree show. There is a stretch I travel to go to Costco and places like that near Princeton. As you come out of Trenton on the left side of the road, it's what I call a ghost forest. It's, it's got to be all ash trees. All you see is these spires sticking up to the sky. Is it worthwhile to take all those trees down and eliminate that? Would that help eliminate the problem in that, that local area? No, the firewood is, is perfectly fine to use. At the point that the trees are dead, the insect uh, long moved on to greener pastures, so to speak. Uh, Ron, one other thing along those lines. I think I may have mentioned this in the first podcast. In 2007, uh, the emerald ash borer was found in western Pennsylvania and Pittsburgh area. And in 2009, it was found in Philadelphia area. That's a, p- a period of two years. It was found in the, all the way across the state. This is an insect that only travels a mile a year. So the insect didn't do this on its own. Movement of emerald ash borer is felt to be primarily, it may almost be exclusively, due to people moving firewood, unbeknownst to them, from an affected area or an infested area to a non-infested area. If they do it at the wrong time of year and those logs have uh, eggs in them, those eggs hatch and before you know it, you got an infestation 300 miles away. How about that? One of the things that they found uh, in early research on the movement of 
the emerald ash borer was it was seeming to show up in all the areas where there was a nascar venue because apparently a lot of nascar fans are campers and they were bringing their own firewood and being good campers they were leaving wood for the next guy they didn't know they were transporting it but that's one of the ways that they found the insect was being disseminated Let's brainstorm a little bit. Maybe we can help municipalities and states figure out what to do about this. Whose problem is this? Is it a utility problem? Is it a municipality problem? Is it a problem of homeowners whose properties abut right away? Whose problem is it? It's actually the individual property owner's problem. That's the way most municipalities look at it. If the tree's on your property, it's your problem. But if if it's in a right away, isn't it partially a municipality's problem? It all depends on the municipality, the the type of road, if it's a state highway or a local road, that would govern whose responsibility it is. And like Bob said, it's a money problem. It's money in somebody's pocket to take these trees down, but it's costing money. And other than the safety of the roadway, they're not getting anything for their, their money. So basically, people's lives are expendable. If one of these things falls on your car and you're driving along to go to the supermarket, next thing you know, you end up dead. Yeah, you know, it was interesting uh, what Gil had said, Gil High, the attorney, at the last podcast. And then something that either I forgot or never knew in the first place. We were talking about an area like along the canal where you can walk, ride your bike or whatever. And there's an extensive amount of that. And you have a situation where basically on the river side of that area, the canal and the walkway, are residents, private residences. The other side, on the street side, it's it's probably a right away, or it's owned by the township or the county or somebody owns it. I found it fascinating that if you have the right, if they allow you to ride your bike, walk, whatever, along that area. They clearly give you permission, the resident and the other owner of the property. You're responsible. You are taking that at your own risk. That's what they're telling you. Uh, That's the way the law is set up. Something happens to you uh, along one of those areas where it's clearly you're allowed to do it. There's signs or whatever. You're taking your own life in your own hands. And I, I was sort of surprised to hear that or, or be reminded of that. That's a surprise to most people. I think it would be a surprise to most people. I think there's a need for a general awareness campaign in the states that are most affected by this to let people know, hey, listen, you need to look out for more than deer. You need to look up and see what's over your head as you're driving down the road because it could be coming down on your head. You know, I think we leave people with one note of caution here. If you got them on your on your property, you don't want to try to take down an ash by yourself, right? That would be a no-no. That would border on incredibly stupid. You don't want to attempt this on your own. The trees are so brittle. There are stories in, in our trade magazines every month of homeowners that have attempted to take trees down and end up either severely injured or even not for amateurs. No, it's not. It's not even for guys like you who who do it for a living because you know, I work for Asplund, working my way through college, and you know, a good tree that had to come down because a road was going in, whatever, you put a climber up there and you start roping down the big limbs. Well, you can't do that with an ash tree because you put a climber up there and he could step on a limb that's going to fall and he's going to fall. They don't climb them anymore. If it's an ash and it's in question, most climbers will not 
touch it. They'll have to bring in specialized equipment like cranes or man lifts to get up and take the tree apart as opposed to the way it used to be done where you climbed it and cut limbs off. I think we all agree that there needs to be a solution to this, but finding the solution is not going to be easy because of the money involved, correct? The solution is very, very definitely money-related. There's so much expense involved here. If that's what you were just talking about, that's the 800-pound gorilla that's sitting in the corner. Uh, it, it really is. Well, we got to leave it there. We're out of time, but I, I just want to thank the both of you for riding around with us, sort of dimensionalize this problem, and we're going to release those files to the governors of New York, New Jersey and uh, Pennsylvania again to see if we can get something to happen. Thank you. Public awareness campaign would be a good start. Remember the name Provia, your single source for professional class, entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood-clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufactured stone and metal roofing, products made with latest technology and honest old-world craftsmanship, the Provia way. That's this week's podcast. If you want us to share your home improvement project or horror story, email me at kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. That's kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. And don't forget to tell your friends and family about Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast that's all about building wealth in residential real estate and hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price. 